I have 114 gold records, 78 number ones, 57 Grammy nominations, seven Grammy nominations by name. I just found out two of the top 44 radio songs in history I worked on, which were Uptown Funk and Gold Digger. I have 47 released BTS mixes. I probably have 20 or 30 gold records with BTS. He's yay now, but the old Kanye was one of the most brilliant people I ever worked with in my entire fucking life. The only other people I can really think of who said incredibly crazy shit and then backed it the fuck up was like Kanye and BTS. There's no money in music unless you have a song that either syncs well or streams well. Very cool. Love the setup. Whereabouts are you based, Ken? Uh, now I'm based in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I was born and raised in Cincinnati and uh, moved to New York City and the New York City area for 29 years. And then uh, COVID basically told me that uh, <laughs> there's no reason to be centrally located as long as you can deliver great work. And so I was like, you know, time to move away from the East Coast and get back to family and uh, more space and property and, and, uh, I wouldn't say more relaxed living because I'm still working as hard as I ever did, but it's in a much more comfortable environment now, which is great. Were you, did you have all these sort of studio equipment that you just brought back from New York or did you have to rebuild everything up? Well, I, kind of both. So, um, yeah, I brought my whole studio back from New York. My studio before was in my house in Jersey. Uh, and we brought that back here, moved it, but we also sold a bunch of that gear to kind of update Studio B here. And now we're in the process of building Studio A and uh, Studio A should be done in August and it'll be a fully immersive room. And uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be such a good room, um, both sonically and visually. I think the way we're designing it is gonna look pretty amazing how much percent of your work is sort of in person you're with the artists versus you're just sort of working at home on your own and sending through mp3 clips well i think uh nowadays it's very little directly with the artist um i think most of the people who work directly with artists now are songwriters and producers um i'm a producer but most of my production work is either the artist is is here with me yes that still happens um, but I don't produce all the time, uh, or, uh, it's via internet and you can get a lot done via internet. I've produced vocalists in Tokyo from my studio in New York city, just via internet, as if they were on the other side of the studio glass with virtually no delay at all. And we had video and audio synced perfectly and I could watch and hear them singing in real time. And, uh, and they were in Tokyo. And I could give them instructions in real time and guide them and coach them as if they were 20 feet away from me over the glass. So really the entire creative world has changed uh, as far as how you can get things done as long as you know how to navigate it. But, you know, back in the day, it was every single day you were with the artists. It was eight days a week in the studio and either the artist or the producer or somebody creative was always in there with you. Um, you know, unless you were mixing, you might mix for 12 hours by yourself, but, but nowadays everybody's kind of camped out. Everybody's got their own space to create and, you know, and they, everybody kind of, you know, you find your clicks, you find as if you're a songwriter, you find the writers that you love to write with that time and time again, every time I get together with this set of people, man, do we come up with great songs? So I'm going to keep writing with them. 
you know, so you, you kind of, a lot of what you do and how, where you go in this industry is built on how you want to do it. Uh, you can be like a run a studio and, and have, you know, people come to you, but a lot of people think that you, to get into the studio or to get into the music industry, you can start a studio, man. That usually leads to you managing a studio nonstop and never finding your way into the music industry because you, for, you know, those are two different things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. There you go. One thing I sort of, maybe it's cause I grew up in the, in a, in, a, in another generation, but what's the main benefits of studios? Like you see kids on TikTok with just like a nice speaker sort of sound foam sort of bedroom and that sort of does a trick and with all this editing you can sort of make it sound really professional what's the main advantage of paying a lot of money to sort of have a studio session well uh you don't have to pay a lot of money for it but you certainly can i think some artists want to feel important or like they want to feel like the beatles worked here so if i go here the beatles have inspired me my entire life so I feel like if I get into that room where they created all of these hits, then I'm going to get some pixie dust off of that. So there's there's a lot of that that goes on, especially at higher levels in the industry where, you know, you have a little bit of money to play with. And you do. And as an artist, if if you're signed to a label and you have a budget, you can say like, OK, we have this much to spend on this. Where do we want to go? Hmm. Abbey Road. Sure. Um, but most people have their own places now. So. If you know what you're doing, you can get highest quality stuff probably with under a $15,000 investment. But the investment is the time in really knowing what you're doing. That's like a 10,000 hour investment. So the 15 grand is easy. That's the easy part of that one. And if you spent the 15 grand without the 10,000 hours, then most likely anything that you create is probably not going to be very good for a long time. But you know, everything's a journey. Like wherever you are now is not where you're going to be in a year or two or five. And if you're looking very short term with track shoes on, it's not a good way to look at the music business. If you're looking marathon runner, like, okay, I got my goals. Mile one, mile two, mile 20, mile 24, mile 26. All right, I'm there. Then that's a lot more of what I think the mentality that tends to work for people in the music industry is the moment you get your biggest opportunity, that's the moment that somehow you figure out however hard I worked for this one, now I've got to work twice as hard to make certain that this opportunity is as big as it can be and leads to my next one or five opportunities because they don't come easy. Ken, how have you been able to get the big opportunities then lay it up with that next big opportunities and sort of made sure that that big opportunity didn't go to waste. Um, you know, there's a, a marked amount of self-promotion, certainly, you know, I, I try and let people know on my socials, uh, what is happening, the good things that I'm working on. But honestly, I get some work from socials for sure, but I, it's not the bulk of it. Um, I think generally nobody knows who you are and nobody cares who you are until they do. Whoever you are, in whatever way, you have to find out how you want to connect with the people that you want to hire you, or as an artist, the people that you want to listen to your music. And if you sit back with the attitude of, you know what, I'm incredibly talented, I know I'm good at this, somebody is going to come find me, 
No, no, that doesn't happen. You got to go get it. I mean, I'm 30 years into a freelance career and I'm still going and getting it every day. I got to go out and find where the work is. Yeah, you know, nowadays, of course, because my credit list of work finds me a lot, but, um, but uh, it, it's not, you know, there's, it's not, it's not, it's not as easy and glamorous as most anybody thinks it is. Love the cop, by the way. That's a cool cop. Yeah. There's a Jersey artist who makes all those one-offs by hand and uh, they're all clay fired and, and uh, we have like 20 monster mugs. If you ever watch Mixing Night, I use a different mug on every Mixing Night. So the monsters always get an appearance. Tell me a bit about the Mixing Nights. Uh, so Mixing Night is, uh, it's my YouTube um, show, I guess. I describe Mixing Night as Howard Stern for studio folks. So I'm not trying to educate you, though you're going to get some good tips. Uh, you know, I'm trying to basically create a show that's once a month, first Wednesday of every month. That's a two hour escape from all of the bullshit of all of the rest of your life. And that you can find two hours with like-minded other people who love being in the studio and creating and making music and things like that, and just come and be a part of the community. And every, every month I'm going to throw down the best show that I can. So, you know, we, I do sprint mixing. I do what, what else do we do on mixing night? Um, I do production breakdowns. I do, I answer live questions off of the YouTube chat role. So there's always like, I try and always loop in the community into what do you want me to show you? Like, I'm here for you guys. This is your two hours a month. And I want to make sure that you leave out of this two hours of mixing night going like, whoa, that was a, what the, what the, the fuck was that? Like, you know, so, uh, and I also, the other thing I love about Mixing Night, it, you can find it at youtube.com forward slash Mixing Night, or you can just Google Mixing Night Ken Lewis and it'll pop right up. Um, but the other thing that I love about Mixing Night is I've kept it unmonetized. So we make no money on the show whatsoever uh, so that we can use copyrighted material because the moment you use copyrighted material on YouTube, they cancel your income streams and give them to the copyright holders. So... I would rather show cool stuff using copyrighted material than I would. And it's not like I'm stealing from anybody. Um, then I would um, do a show that is specifically geared to earn myself money. That's never, we started the show in the beginning of the pandemic, first week of lockdown in New York city, when COVID was hitting New York city, like a fucking freight train. I mean, it was horrible. And everybody went from normal to completely locked down. Nobody knew what the fuck was happening, how long it would go. So, and I had my friend Dominic over from Germany uh, stand with me. He was supposed to be there for a week and he, he got stuck with us for three months. And we were like, we got all this gear. We got some cameras. Why don't we just do a YouTube show and see what happens? So we started out with uh, Q&A with Ken and ran a bunch of episodes with Q&A with Ken. Then it uh, morphed itself into Mixing Night. And we're still going after over three years now. That is so cool, Kat. Before we go too deep in, Ken, could you please give the audience like a bit of an intro on who you are and sort of what the main things that you've been focusing on recently? Uh, my name is Ken Lewis. I make records. Uh, I am a mixer, producer, songwriter, engineer, arranger, multi-instrumentalist, vocalist, sample recreator, educator of sorts. And I've been working in the music industry for 30 years, top 
top credits are I have 114 gold records. Um, I have something like 77 or 78 number ones, 57 Grammy nominations, seven Grammy nominations by name. So it's going well. Uh, I just worked recently on Taylor Swift's Midnight's album. Uh, what else has been popping recently? I just found out uh, this week that uh, two of the top 44 radio songs in history I worked on, which were Uptown Funk and Gold Digger. So, you know, I've, I've kind of been meandering through the music industry as, as I don't know, a chameleon or a unicorn or somebody like nobody does what I do. I, I'm just I'm like this octopus that that has all of these different skill sets built up over years of just being asked to do the craziest shit. And I'd say Kanye has a lot. Uh, the old Kanye West has a lot to do with that. Um, he started hiring me in 2002 and I I came on board working with him as his sample recreator so he would sample something couldn't get it cleared and then they called me up and they were like can you do you know how to recreate samples and i'm i was like of course i do send that shit over and so and this was before kanye was an artist this was kanye as a producer um so i started uh uh recreating and flipping samples for kanye and then that led to uh, still doing that, but also doing other things like production and uh, performance and things like that. I, I produced the horn section on all of the lights. I've worked on Power, Heartless, uh, Gold Digger, uh, the, the College Dropout. I, last album I worked with him on was Pablo, I think, and none of my work I used. But that's kind of when when you have a Kanye West, I became the guy that when Kanye didn't know how to get something, but he knew what he wanted. It was, the, you know, he'd probably try his inner circle guys. And if they didn't come through, it was call Ken and Ken would figure it out. I was the figure it out guy. So, you know, when Kanye called me for the horn section on all the lights, he never once asked me, do you know anything about horns? Never came up. And I had never done horns for him before. He just was like, he, you know, he must've been thinking like, I've thrown so much crazy shit at this guy that he's just going to solve it for me. And I'll just give it to him. So I did. Uh, so after, you know, 20 years of doing that kind of shit, all of these different skill sets, uh, go in all of these different directions. And now I'm really working hard to find things that pull all of those skill sets together that I can really utilize everything into, you know, more projects than, than just, you know, using this skill for this and that skill for that. And, uh, but wherever there's a paycheck and, uh, you know, something I want to do and I'll go. That's super cool. So for example, with Taylor Swift's most recent out Midnight album, what did you sort of do or what role did you have in the album? Well, I'm officially credited as a recording engineer on Lavender Hayes, Question, and Vigilante Shit. Uh, and I also worked on the Lover album on background vocals on uh, False God. So my official title is uh, recording engineer. Um, my NDA title is I Can't Talk About It. So when you, when you work on projects of that level, and I have rarely signed NDAs in my life, but the moment Jack Antonoff puts an NDA in front of you and says, you don't get to know who the artist is until it's out, sign away. What do you need, Jack? And, um, you know, those things are usually like really top secret and really to the vest, but being a, even a small cog in that huge wheel is unbelievable, especially like, you know, we we didn't know it was going to be Taylor, and we were certainly hoping it was going to be Taylor. 
Uh, but then the night the Midnight's album dropped at like midnight, I get my phone just starts blowing up with fucking texts. And I'm like, what the hell is happening? And then it was like Midnight's dropped. Oh, shit. And then the next week, she had the top 13 slots on the Billboard Hot 100. And I had three top 10 singles at one time, which had never happened in my entire career. I just recently had three, um, three albums in the uh, Hot 100 top 10 again. And that's only the second time in my career that that's happened. And two of those albums this time were Taylor's. So that girl is just a phenomenon. It's amazing. And it's just, I'm, you know, one of the things that I like most about her is she dedicates herself to songwriting and her identity and her, a lot of her wealth, most of her wealth, I think has been generated from her songs and from her music and most other really wealthy musicians or artists can't say that you know they they did great in music but the liquor company made them the billionaire or the clothing line made them you know hundreds of millions or the drink line or whatever it was made them far exceed anything they did in music taylor she's making more than any of them only in music it's so impressive and she is i think the best songwriter on planet earth i've said that for over a decade do you think Taylor's most of her music revenue does it come from selling her songs or does majority of it come from touring? Um, well, if you see the numbers on the Eras tour, unheard of. Um, she's going to make so much money on that. And God bless her. Uh, we went to the Eras tour in Cincinnati and it was exceptional. It was so good. Uh, but I think she makes most of her money. So nobody sells songs anymore. That doesn't happen. Everything is streamed. So if you're still trying to sell CDs or if you're still trying to sell MP3s, stop right now, back up, get on streaming. I know they don't pay shit, but that's where everybody is. And if you don't have fans, then who's going to find you? You know, so maybe you sell 100 MP3s. What if you could have had 10,000 people listening to you and 100 of those people would have showed up to your concert in every city? So, yeah, I think streaming has been like the great field leveler for independent artists, even though everybody looks at it as uh, the worst thing in history. Um, I still, I think the payouts are too low, but the ability for artists to reach their fans in meaningful ways on a top platform has never been easier. And I think pretty sure it's a historic fact that right now in history, more artists are surviving solely off music revenue than ever before in history. And I think a lot of that has to do with streaming because I don't have to be famous to earn a living on streaming. If you're an artist and you build up a following of 500,000 followers a month, so you have 500,000 monthly listeners, then chances are you're probably going to average two songs per listen, maybe. So that's a million listens a month. And if you own all of your content, that's $5,000 a month only on streaming. If you can ramp that up to a million, then that might be $10,000 a month that you make on streaming. It's more of a sustained game now, and it's more of a constantly feeding your fans. And it's, it's now not the music business. It's the entertainment business, which really sucks. But we're here now. It's almost impossible to be a successful artist, especially starting out if you're not on TikTok or IG or at least one platform where you're really successful. 
uh, and you're really working your fan base and your potential fan base really hard uh, because fans don't find you. You got to go put yourself in front of them somehow, and then you got to relentlessly network if you want to be an artist and grow a career. And at the same time, you've got to write great songs and create all this TikTok content. And it's, it's, it's not like it used to be. I think it really sucks that creators have to do everything now, but here we are. With the artists like Drake and Taylor, when they release like a 12 song album, 12 track album, did they have to go through like, like did they make a hundred songs and pick the top 12 or did they just spend that whole time perfecting 12 or 16? I, every artist is different. So I can't, I can't speak to Drake's process. I've, I've worked for him, never in the same room with him, but there are some artists, uh, there's famous girl. I'm not sure if I should mention this or not, but it's famous girl. I, I worked for on a big hit uh, a while back and when we were hanging out, I was asking, you know, how's the album coming? When is it going to come out? And they said, you know, it's going to come out in about two or three months. So and I was like, how many songs have you wrote for it so far? It's 160. 160 written and recorded. Wow. Uh, you know, maybe not all to completion, but far enough to know whether they actually think they have something, uh, which is a lot of songs. And that was two or three months before the end. So they might have tacked on more after that. And I think that's a really common thing for a lot of artists. That's an, an, an extreme, I think. But I think it's very common for a lot of artists to either have one camp that they create everything with. And if you're not in that camp, you might as well be a million miles away. You're not getting in that camp. Or like a label might take a new signing artist and they might put them on the songwriting circuit. And they'll put them with 50 different songwriters in two months and almost nobody gets paid for any of that work and they'll write 50 or 60 or 70 songs and 30 or 40 or 50 of them will get finished. And then they'll whittle down the album to 10 to 15 songs. And then the record company will go cut deals with only those creatives and everybody else that was time wasted. Um, and that's the, that's the business we're in. Um, it's kind of a shit business. And, you know, one of the uh, good and bad things about that is if you can get into that loop, amen, man, you can do really great. And you probably worked really, really hard to get in that loop. But, um, but if you can't, then opportunities are scarce. So as a producer, if you work with an artist and you sort of produce like 50 songs, but only one was actually chosen to be released, does that mean you only get like a, a percentage of revenue for that one and all the other 49 you all that time went to waste correct now there are some producers and writers who are big enough to command an upfront fee for showing up mm. and so but that's again that's the top tier of the industry and i'm not in that top tier as a they don't pay me to just show up and see what happens you know <laughs> And uh, either they hire me because they love my other production and I'm going to be the guy or not. But yeah, all of those people are just taking their shots. Every, you know, the music industry is built on hope. You know, everybody just hopes that their next shot is going to be the one that goes. And, you know, after that one goes, you better start taking a lot more shots really fucking fast because, uh, you know, that credit isn't going to stay current forever. And as soon as it's old, nobody cares about you anymore unless you got a shiny new credit, shiny new something to hang your hat on. So, you know, like so the gold ain't 
what's that? When you're working on the Midnight album, did Taylor Swift know that you were working on it and did she choose you? No. Oh, yeah. wow. No, uh, no, I've worked uh, for years for Jack Antonoff, who's one of the best producers in the entire world. Um, and he produces a lot of Taylor stuff. He, he's produced a, a lot of uh, female artists. He's brilliant. And Jack hires me sometimes as kind of like a designated hitter. Like he knows I know how to make every fucking record from every angle. So if he's overwhelmed on a project or if he just doesn't have the exact skill sets for this thing that he knows I do, then he'll call me up and be like, hey, can you do it? And I'll get, yeah, send the NDA, send the files. I'll get, I'll get the work. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure unless, you know, Taylor was in the room when the conversation was happening about me that she had no idea, nor should she. It's not, you know, my contribution to that album was not, it wasn't critical to be in the same room with Taylor at the same time. You know, Jack Antonoff couldn't have made that record without being with her nonstop, but not me. Other records where I am the producer, then I would be the Jack in the room. So every day is a different day in that midnight album like how many different people are credited and working on it like is it a lot of people no now if you look at like the liner notes on any kanye record you'll see 70 or 80 guys and a few girls but i didn't count the creatives on the the liner notes on midnights but i remember it being haltingly small and when I saw that, I was really, really shocked that I was the one that got any call for anything. So, yeah, like, you understand, like, had they called me to pick up Taylor from the airport, my only question would have been, so what's going to be the credit on the liner notes if I do that for you? And so, you know, um, in my business, I mean, the money's great, but the money spends really quick and uh, the credits especially at that level, last a long time. And, you know, I always try and do my best work to keep my credits current and my skill sets current and sharp. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle, usually. In one of, like, Kanye's recent albums, like, you know how people usually feat, like the, like, the featuring artists? He just didn't have that at all on any of the songs. What's happening there? I'm pretty sure if you go to the details, you can see the featured artists. What's happening in that scenario? Honestly, I don't know. I haven't talked to Kanye in maybe seven years. And seeing him lately, I don't want to. Um, it, you know, I, He's Ye now. I don't know who Ye is. I've never met Ye. I don't want to meet Ye. But the old Kanye was one of the most brilliant people I ever worked with in my entire fucking life. Dude was a musical genius. And uh, yeah, I hope he gets back to that. Another example is like, for example, like I remember Drake talking about Sicko Mode, how he wasn't credited on Sicko Mode. Is he not credited or like what happens in the, yeah, like what's happening? People forget about it's So if you look at the end of a Hollywood film, you'll see scroll, scroll, scroll for five or six minutes nonstop, a solid wall of people's names and exactly what they did. Groundskeeper, best boy, grip, lighting, all, you know, assistant to the assistant's assistant. Everybody gets credited. In the music industry, it's not like that at all. Almost nobody gets credited for anything unless you 
make certain that your credit gets tracked and uh, and put in. And even then, how many liner notes are accurate nowadays? Probably very few. It's just, you know, the music industry is spread way too thin. Uh, the the rank and file people in at the labels, like the A&R admin people, you know, there used to actually be A&R admin staffs who would handle credits and billing and all that. Labels just pared those down, fewer and fewer people. So now it's like mind-numbingly hard to get paid. Half the time you don't get your credits. Nobody really cares. And, you know, and if you complain about it, what do they care? You know, they're on to their next release tomorrow. They don't care about your lost credit. Boo-hoo. It's always been a problem with the music industry, and it's probably never going to change. But I, I wish it would, you know, because that's how we survive is people knowing what we've worked on. So, you know, and, and, and actually, that's funny that you were mentioning that before, because uh, I had to ramp up my presence on social media as I realized nobody's buying CDs anymore. Credits aren't anywhere to be found. How are people even going to know I exist? let alone my skill sets, let alone how perfect my skill sets will be for your record. And, uh, you know, it used to be back in the day, albums, liner notes, CD, liner notes, you could see everybody who worked on that whole thing if they got their actual credit, which, again, was hit and miss. Nowadays, can't find it almost anywhere. So, you know, I like Mixing Night. Uh, the main benefit for me with Mixing Night is it keeps me kind of active in the public eye. And, uh, and it keeps people who give a shit informed about what I'm doing and, uh, you know, spreads the word and lets other people find out about me so that I can continue to work. And that's really like, have you been following this, uh, SAG after strike, the writer's guild? Oh yes. A bit. Yeah. So SAG after and the, uh, writers, is it writers guild of America? Um, are striking in Hollywood right now. It's basically all of the creatives in Hollywood are striking because they basically want to replace anybody that they possibly can with AI. And it's coming to the music industry too, probably way worse than it could ever hit the uh, movie industry. Um, and we are not unionized, so we can't fight it. I think the music industry is is set for a really massive upheaval probably in the nearest future. Uh, maybe one of the only things that could protect us from that is this uh, SAG after UAG strike. So if they're successful, that might offer some real protections towards artists and writers in music as well. So I am fully in support of that strike and, uh, and praying that they get every single thing that they need. Um, Cause it's, I, I really look at this as a watershed moment in history for real, for real right now. If we don't put serious curbs and limitations on usage for this stuff, then the executives are just going to fucking get rid of us, AI us, and sell the, you know, the public something slightly not as good, but I mean, it doesn't cost them a penny. So, eh. you know, and if like, I would encourage anybody out there to, to TikTok the uh, SAG after UAG writer strike or WAG writer strike and listen to what a lot of these actors and writers and people are saying, because we look at like, here's one story. Well, I won't break down what they're going through, but, but basically the, what Hollywood has offered the writers and, and actors 
as an opening salvo for a contract is so mind-blowingly uh, uh, off base. It's, they basically want the ability, and they put this in writing, they want the ability to bring in like a B-level actor, pay them a flat fee, scan them, AI scan them, scan their voice, their image, the whole thing, own that in perpetuity, use it for anything they want ever, and never pay them any residuals at all after that day one. Is that real? Is that and is that, that happening? I, is it a new I contract? Swear to God, yeah. You you should start researching this. Yeah, it that's that was one of their contract uh, proposals back, and they rejected all of the completely sane things that that uh, the strikers are asking for. They just it wasn't even like a counter. It was just like rejected, 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 rejected. Well, our use of AI will be like, no, you know, we've gotten to a place where, you know, the corporations and billionaires own everything. They don't give a fuck about us. You know, thank God that that Hollywood creatives have uh, unionized so that they can fight this. And it's it's going to have ramifications far beyond Hollywood. You know, any other think of all of the industries that are going to be utterly decimated by AI. And then look at the Hollywood writer strike again and ask yourself, uh, could this come to my industry too? Whatever it is, truck driving, truck drivers are going to be gone. Um, fast food, don't need, don't need employees there. You know, any kind of most regular jobs are just going to be gone. So either we allow the billionaires to make us all, you know, third world citizens again, or we hold the line right now and uh, strike until they get what they want. And we hope that there's enough power and spillover to help the music industry. So that's my prayer. Like what's like a possible solution? Because, you know, as AI gets better, like there's probably some AI sort of tech that you use when you, when you produce, right? Things that automatically balance things out, things I could read, split up tracks. Like, isn't that, oh, isn't a lot of that sort of AI and it's just going to get better and people are going to use it. And then, but then you don't want it to be too good. So it's like, you can't have the best of both worlds. Trust me, it's already too good. And the, the problem is not gonna be, you know, you've probably heard the Kanye simulation and the Drake simulation and the whatever. And those are stunning enough. But here's the way I break it down to people that you don't realize. So say a record label hires a new artist, or sorry, signs a new artist. So you got a new artist contract with record label A used to be that they would have to either uh, probably go out and hire a bunch of producers, spend a bunch of time in the studio, you know, months and months and months of creativity and hope that at the end you had a great album. Well, now you just got a bunch of computer programmers, you know, putting in a bunch of prompts all day long. And what if a label signs a new artist and says, okay, we're going to sign you. And here is the palette of musical tracks that you can choose. Or even further, here's the palette of songs that you can choose to perform that their AI has all written. Music, vocals, lyrics, everything. I mean, anything is possible now. So how much of the creative process did that just cut out with that new signing? Every producer, every recording engineer, every mix engineer, maybe they'll, maybe they'll have it mixed, maybe. And then you have... Um, I mean, 
countless other people that rely on that whole chain that are going to be gone out of it. Songwriters, gone. Producers, gone. But the scarier thing is not the, oh, you know, what if they create a song that sounds like Drake but isn't Drake? If I'm an exec, I'm sitting there right now and I'm going, all right, let's find some prompts. I want to I want to create a voice that has the flow of a mixture of Kendrick Lamar, Kanye West, and Travis Scott. But I want the timbre to be more like, you know, I don't know, Rick Ross. And but not exactly Rick. I want the timbre to be like if Rick Ross had a baby with Nicki Minaj, what would that voice timbre sound like? And then, so you have completely different flows, completely different uh, voice timbres. And then, okay, now write me lyrics that are like Kanye and Taylor Swift collaborated on this pop hit. And Taylor wrote the hook and Kanye wrote the verses. Let's, let's go even deeper. Let's say that an amalgam of Kanye, Travis Scott, Rick Ross, and Lil Wayne are my source for the lyricists. So now I have like an AI who has scanned the entire recorded works of six or seven or eight or 12 or 100 different artists. And all I'm doing is sitting back and listening and going, okay, next, next song, spit another one out. Let me see if I like this. Spit another one out. Let me see if I like this. And then it's just spit out more and more and more songs until that one song comes out that you're like, holy shit, okay, we got it. Now let's perfect it. Now let's get this grooving and create a whole album with this AI artist that nobody even knows is an AI artist because it sounds completely original. That's where we're headed and it's gonna ruin everything. What made Kanye so good? Was it his producing? Was it his writing? Like what made him so good? Um, I mean, uh, part of it was his cockiness because <laughs> he's maybe one of the only people in history I've ever seen who said the most outlandish shit, but then actually backed it the fuck up. And I mean, it's really across the, let me back up. So I worked with Kanye since before he was a known artist at all, before he was a signed artist. And I had no idea that he had interest in, in actually being an artist. When I was first in a room with him, um, we were working on, he was producing Memphis Bleak, Memphis wasn't around. And, and he called me to come down and make some music for him for the Memphis song that he was producing. Uh, so I went down to Quad Studio A and, and brought my guitar and my keys and all that shit and got to work. And in the back of the control room, Kanye and two of his boys sat there for like two hours straight, ignoring the whole fucking session, just rhyming off their domes, non-fucking-stop. And the shit Kanye was rhyming that night was so different and so innovative and so higher level than any shit I had probably ever heard. I was just sitting there going, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. This guy's a fucking artist. Oh, shit. This guy is either going to sell 10 million or 10 because either everybody's going to get it like I'm getting it right now or it's so different that nobody's going to get it. And almost nobody ever signed him. And I think, so you have to remember, first he was an innovator and he completely, like the music industry was going straight ahead, straight ahead. And then it just went fucking turn right. And that was Kanye changed everything. And then he did it again several times in his career. Um, the way music has followed him. It's been, it's been incredible. His biggest attribute 
the Kanye, the old Kanye I know was being a visionary, having a vision for what he wanted. His lyrics were undeniable. His music is undeniable. Sampling is undeniable. His ability to put a song together is undeniable. He's brilliant, but his his ability to realize his vision at the highest level is what sets him apart. And the perfect example of that would be the college dropout was a huge success and he had a lot of great creatives around him. I was one of them, but he could have produced that entire album himself and done it really, really well. He chose to surround himself with high level creatives and draw their talents from them. That's what producers do. When I produce, I'm not trying to be the Ken Lewis show. I'm trying to be the, how, where can I find the inspiration for this record? Who can I bring in that's going to enhance what I'm doing, what the artist is doing? How can I enhance this dynamic? That's always what I'm thinking about. And so like for Kanye, he was a brilliant producer before he was an artist. He could have done it all himself. Like album two, he brought in John Bryan as his main producer. And he and John Bryan put together, uh, uh, what was it? Late registration? Late registration, yeah. And who, what other rappers have reached out to you know, a, a multi-talented rock producer in a completely other genre because they loved and were inspired by what they were doing. And they said, you know what? If you and I make music together, there's going to be some fucking magic. And most high-level creatives don't have the capacity to let somebody else that high level in next to them, if that makes sense. And of all people, you wouldn't think Kanye would be the one, but he is. How do you think Drake has stayed relevant for so long? Well, I mean, he owns Canada, so that doesn't hurt at all. I mean, he is the king of Toronto for sure. He started an incredible music movement. I mean, that city, I'm not going to say it owes everything to Drake, but shit, without Drake, I don't know if Toronto would be considered anywhere near the level of music city that it is. So, you know, fans love him. He knows what to give him. He's in, he's really in tune with uh, what he wants to put in front of his fans. And he and usually that works great for him i mean he's he's great i think his simplicity is a big help too like you know easy tracks you can hear his voice clear as day there's not much clouding it up he's a great writer great flow you know so how did he avoid not getting repetitive because for example like if i'm looking at um kanye's discography like he it, every album is so different and it always feels like every new Kanye album, people are a bit shocked. They don't understand what's going on. And then you re-listen to it five, 10 years later and you're like, wow, this is, I get it. And, and it feels like Kanye is always ahead of the curve. And, and it's sort of hard to stay relevant for that long. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, I, don't, I don't know how he's done it for so long. He, I mean, like I said, back to Kanye, he's an innovator. I mean, the, the, the reason I think it's not like he's fallen off much musically, but he ain't what he used to be. Um, but now he's focused on fashion and this and that and this and that. No, no, no. Back in the day, man, it was music. You knew what you were going to get from Kanye West. You were going to get incredible lyrics. You were going to get songs that like, when I heard the college dropout for the first time, it had this amazing ability to allow me to relate with it and connect with it, even though I never lived any of those stories, but his stories are so vivid and so well crafted that you feel like 
you know, I'm in this. Like I can, I can see the fucking video as it, as I'm hearing the, the lyric, it's just so uh, descriptive. And I think he's gotten a little bit away from lyricism uh, over the years. Like, you know, I think it's hard to stay at, at that level of anything um, because when he was coming up, it's not like he was broke, but uh, you know, the struggle and the, you know, it's always a different creative experience when you're not, uh on yet and then after you are it's just shit changes you know so it's hard to it's hard to continuously tap into the same thing over and over and over i think but some people can taylor can i was listening to a recent interview with zane malik who used to be one direction and um pharrell and, and i was just hearing these guys like every morning they go to the studio and they just do what they do for you know a few hours and then they go home and they go on with the day and they do this every single day yet they haven't released an album in years um trust me the labels the labels probably pissed about that <laughs> um i mean it's not like pharrell is cheap uh but zane is probably caking with money so you know who cares Every creative is different. You can't look at one set of creatives and go like, oh, that's the industry. Because literally every creative creates differently. You have people, I live in the studio. I almost never leave this place. You know, this is where my, most of my life happens. I've kind of come to grips with that. And that's what it is. You know, other people like to, you know, be on stage, not the studio or, you know, whatever it is, wherever you're creativity flows however it flows some people are grinders some people just need four six hours of real focus you know it's one of the great things about creativity is everybody taps into it in a different way everybody who asks for you know how can i make it in the music industry okay here's how you can make it in the music industry i don't fucking know i mean every single person has a different path to success every single person has a different path to success so, you know, you just got to take your best shots and keep taking more shots until something breaks. And then once, you know, once you start getting more opportunities, one of the kisses of death and for young artists in the music industry is being famous before your fans. So, which is basically, you know, you go from nobody knows who the fuck you are to all of a sudden a, a small subset of individuals cares about you. A hundred thousand people are now listening to your song this month or whatever. A million people are listening to your song. And all of a sudden you think that's something. And in the music business, that's absolutely nothing. That's a start. And most people, or like after you sign that record deal, but before you actually have a hit single and you start treating everybody as if you're the hit artist and with the hit single that you don't have. Even if you've had a hit single, we've all had hit singles. Fucking get over it. You need another one if you're going to have a, a career to keep going back to. So drop the fucking ego and get back to work. The famous before you're famous really ends a lot of amazing young careers before they ever get started. Because everybody who helps them, they turn on. I've seen it count. It's happened to me every fucking time. It's ridiculous. And, you know. And I don't know, it's uh, I think everybody thinks it's much, much easier or nowhere near as difficult to make it and survive in the music industry as it actually is. And it's a fucking nightmare, but I can't see myself doing anything else. So, you know, I'm just going to keep doing 
what I what I'm doing until I can't do it anymore. In the last like eighty years, there must be so many people that play roles in these big hit songs that have a bunch of sort of you know gold, platinum sort of underneath their belt. But then you know it fizzles out by the age of fifty, sixty, and you know they're sort of a freelancer like. Like, do they have to go get a normal job? Can can they still? You're, you're talking about me. So here's here's the for for people who want to get in the music industry, uh, if you are not a writer or a producer, then you or an artist, then you don't make residuals. You can make some residuals on certain things, but most of the residuals are made from writing and publishing, mm-hmm. and uh, live performance, not live performance, residuals, uh, masters. So masters, publishing, and writing. So if you don't own any of the master or if you don't have producer points on a record or if you're not a writer, then you don't get any of the spoils of the success of that record. And the only thing that you made was your upfront paycheck, which is now long gone, and you need to go find another one. And this is me every day. You know, I've I've made a lot of money from residuals over 30 years. If I took all of that and put it into a one-year lump sum, I'd be like, holy shit. Spread that out across 30 years. And I'm like, residuals are a small part of what I do. I'd like them to be more. A, a hit record is really, really hard to come by uh, as, as far as residuals go. They just don't grow on trees. Most creatives... Like you look at my resume and go 114 fucking gold records. That dude must be rich. Holy shit. The gold on the records is not real. I am not rich. I live a very middle-class lifestyle. I'm very happy, but I ain't close to rich. And that's because most of my career has been spent as a studio guy, helping people make their records as even sometimes as a producer, um, uh, you don't always get uh, royalties as a producer. You usually do. You should, but not always. Depends on what you're hired for and how what deal you go into it with. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like it's one of the reasons that the Hollywood actors and writers are striking right now because all of those residuals that they used to live on are are now not being paid out by the streaming services. So their income is just gone. There's no income anymore except for that upfront thing that they got to do the whatever gig that they got they got an upfront fee then they should get residuals but um yeah so if you're not making residuals you're probably scraping by in the music business and you know paycheck to paycheck and gig to gig and you hit great my you know you hit great times and you hit lean times and everybody goes through that i've certainly gone through a lot of lean times but what else am i going to do ken right now with your sort of all the work you currently do, can you ask for residuals and have a lower upfront payment? Or is it usually all upfront, zero residuals, zero sort of royalties? Well, if I'm, say I'm a recording engineer, recording engineers don't get points. Mix engineers rarely get points. Mm. Um, I mean, I get, I get points as a mixer sometimes. Rarely they pay out. Mm. Uh, and, you know, occasionally I make a little bit from them but not, not a tremendous amount. So a lot of the creative roles throughout the music industry, if you're not getting that residual, the only thing you make is the upfront, and that's that. And they're trying to take away the residuals from us as well, so that's kind of a problem. 
Now, even if someone did get residuals for writing, producing, like if each stream that song makes gets 0.002 cent a stream, and then it has to be split between the artists, everyone that has royalties and the label, like the residuals would be nothing, right? It depends. Every, every product's different. So in 2018, uh, me and my uh, dear friend, old production partner, Brent Colatalo, uh, started developing an artist named Desrox. And we developed Desrox, uh, who's AKA Danny Rocco. Um, we started Desrox in my studio from nothing. Danny came in, played us a ton of songs. None of those songs ever came out. But in them, we heard like, okay, this dude is fucking talented. We should work with him. So the three of us worked together and we all worked to split rights. Me and Brent took half and Danny took half. And, and that's what it was. And for a year, we spent about four long days a week in the studio together, grinding, making song after song after song. We probably created 20 or so songs before we put one out and changed the direction of the project several times but then we started dropping songs and it caught pretty quick and we've done great at streaming we've done great in sync licensing which is using music uh your music gets used in film tv video games uh any kind of motion stuff we that's one of the best rights projects that i've had um certainly recently and between streaming when we had him he was peaking at 1.7 million listeners per month which was probably equating to about 3000 streams a month which was equating to 15000 to split between us and him and that and so for every month we were splitting that much that was pretty good um and then sync licensing you know you could have a sync license come in for i mean we don't go for the small shit but uh, you know, 2,500, 3,500, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. Like, it depends. And the same song can license for 5,000 and 200,000. I've seen it happen. And one doesn't really affect the other. I thought early on in sync that, you know, I'm going to save my best song for that one perfect sync opportunity that's going to make this one song a million dollars. No. Nobody cares what your songs have synced on previous to what they want to sync them for. So take, take any sync that you can get. And if you want to do well in sync music, you got to get a sync agent because that's the only people that music supervisors will deal with is sync agents. And my sync agent is a uh, lyric house. They're brilliant. What is a sync license and what is syncing? So synchronization of music to, to motion picture of any kind not film just moving picture synchronization of your music to somebody else's thing it's a one-time upfront fee and half goes to the master half goes to the uh, writers and publishers and it spells out in the sync license what the usage is if they use more than what the license says there are bump ups written in the contract that automatically get you paid more so like in des Roxland, first thing uh one of the early things i did before i met lyric house i landed us three sinks that came in at eight thousand dollars a piece and then by the time those sinks were paid out all three sinks paid out twenty thousand dollars each for those three songs because they had used more of the usage than they originally thought 
So we made 60 grand right off the jump, not off jump. It was, we were a year and a half in, um, but uh, we made 60 grand. And then I took that, I took that momentum and I went to Lyric House and I said, Hey, Lyric House, I'm Ken Lewis. I, I know what I'm doing. I've made a few things you've heard. And I have this artist that I'm developing now who's really incredible. And what if we all partnered together and did some sync work? And so they took me, they didn't take Des Rocks on, they took me on. So they, they represent my share of anything that I create to uh, film, TV, video games, uh, stuff like that. So they know what the licenses should come in at. They negotiate them. They make sure they're at the right dollar amounts that, um, that should be happening. They make sure that the bump ups are correct. Again, these are sync agents. Uh, they make sure that the bump ups are correct so that if th they get used more, then you get paid more. Um, but the reason that music supervisors will only work with sync agents is because of sampling. Sync agents clear, pre-clear all music before they ever put anything in front of a music supervisor. And they hold, they don't hold all of the rights. They control all of the rights to be able to sign the sync license. If a music supervisor is dealing directly with a producer or an artist or a writer, and that artist or whoever forgets or doesn't want to mention that maybe they sampled something and it's buried in the song. I mean, nobody's going to know, right? Nobody's going to know. So they're just not going to mention it. Well, that sample could get that Hollywood studio sued through the fucking teeth. So nobody wants to take that risk. So everybody works through sync agents who pre-clear, who represent, you know, certain artists and certain music and Anything that they put in front of a music supervisor has already been completely pre-cleared and that license could get done in one hour if they, and often it does. And often that's, you know, it's great to have that sync agent in place because these people will call, you know, they've been, ah, okay, I got one more scene and I, it's, this is what the scene is and I'm looking for this kind of a song and the song that I had roughed in was like, you know, uh, I don't know, some Metallica song. So I can't use, I can't afford a Metallica do you have anything like that? Well, we got Des Rocks. Let me live. Let me die. Let me hear it. Holy shit. This is perfect. Okay. Put it in. And in, in sync business, it really often happens that fast. Um, and it only happens through sync agents. How do you keep your song, your artist top of mind on the sync agent? Because they probably have thousands of songs they could recommend people. How do you keep your guy top of mind? I don't know that you do. Yeah. You do by, by continuously creating great songs that they can sing. Mm. They're in the business of placing their catalog. And if you have, you know, if your catalog lines up with an opportunity that comes across their desk, then they're going to put the best song from your catalog into the folder that they submit to the music supervisor, or maybe they send them only one and it's yours. But you know, that's, that, that's how it should work. Sync agents are at different levels. You know, some manage a huge uh, catalog that they really don't know what's in there. They just do keyword searches and see what they find. And then they service that to the music uh, agent or the music supervisor. Smaller shops like, like Lyric House, like I call them a small shop in ninjas. They're like six or seven or eight people by now that are just get shit done people. And I don't have to worry about keeping my artist on the top of their thing. Like, you know, they know what we do and they know what we have. And whenever the right opportunity comes along for what we're doing, 
it's in their best interests to put their best song. And if it's not, if our song isn't the best for the opportunity, I don't expect them to send my song. And that's the way it works. So, you know, it's tough because it's hard to get syncs. But if you can get into that churn, especially where music supervisors know you, know what music you have to offer and know that they love it, then they'll keep coming back to you. Like Shameless, season 10 of Shameless, we got the uh, the main trailer uh, for Showtime. And that was a huge check. And then uh, we ended up getting four more in-episode syncs with four other songs because we had the trailer. So it helped the music supervisor keep the music more consistent throughout the season. And it put four more syncs into our pockets uh, that we probably wouldn't have gotten had we not landed the trailer. So it's just, everything's a crapshoot. And you just gotta keep feeding the beast and keep your work at the highest level you can keep it. Cause you know, a lot of, I think in sync land, a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to take my B pluses and my A minuses to sync. We'll, we'll sync those. No, no. Music, music supervisors do not want to hear your A minus. They want to hear the best fucking song that they can possibly get for their show. And they don't care who or where they get it from. They're going to get it from somebody. So it's going to be an A. And, you know, the, there's there's this kind of second secondary mentality to sync. And it's not like that at all. The, the difference with sync is you don't have to write a radio hit. You just have to write a great song that connects with the right person at the right moment with the right lyric that works in this scene. And you'll get paid so but you can go five years without getting a sync and then you could get 10 right in a row it's just a crapshoot now there's that dynamic of it how does it differ to when sort of artists and producers work on a project like for example labyrinth on euphoria or Hans zimmer with all the christopher nolan projects where it's like that isn't like a sync license or is it I'm sure that, yeah, there's got to be a sync license involved somewhere, but the main money is not the sync license. The main money is the contract between, you know, the movie studio and Hans Zimmer or somebody like that. Uh, especially when you're talking about the level of those type of projects. I mean, you're talking about people writing their own, you know, Hans can charge multiples of what most other brilliant film scorers on earth can charge. So it's hard to go apples to apples with comparisons because... Everybody is at a different, you know, it's like Hollywood actors, you know, some can command 500,000, some command 5 billion, some command 15 million. How? Why? Who knows? It's just, that is what it is. And everything's negotiated and everything's negotiable. Um, and the higher up you get, the more expensive it gets and the more negotiation. When you're like an artist like these rocks that you've been developing, when let's say you get signed to a label, what happens to your 50% of masters? Like, does it, are you now dealing with the label? Like, how does that work? He did sign, he did sign to a label and he just did new music. So we, he wasn't signed to us. Every song that we did was just a contract between us and him. Mm. So he had the flexibility to go work with anybody else he wanted at any time. And so, so could we. And, uh, and so we ended up doing like, I think we released 13 or 15 songs together over the years. I think we got one more coming out on his new album coming right up. Um, but, you know, uh, most of the sync stuff has was the earliest stuff we put out. It's hard to predict. Careers are funny things, man. They're, they're not a straight line. 
they're they're like a bunch of loops and circles and backups and false starts and crashes and you know that that experience thing is the experience is failure you know and i have a shit ton of experience which has made me a great record maker uh but that's come through a lot of trial and error and hit and miss and hardship and hurt and you know it's the way it is can people like say rick rubin is he like a producer and does he get like producing credits and royalties and his role is just to come in and just listen and give his experiences not really touching the keyboards or anything uh he's definitely not a hands-on producer as in i'm gonna play all the instruments um uh but he certainly can do that he founded def jam i mean dude's brilliant um but I don't know Rick personally, and I've never been in the room with him, so it's kind of hard to talk about his process. But what I gather of him is he has an innate ability to listen and guide in a way that most people can't understand the value of. And some people probably, some artists probably see no value. in. I think his style is probably not for everybody, but take somebody like Adele, you take Rick Rubin out of that, and maybe we've never heard Adele. Mm. And it's the only thing I can say about about rick is i don't know how he makes records and i hear he's really hands off but everything that comes out is just brilliant and connective and moving and there has to be a huge x factor that's him doing that so what's his process totally different than mine but his results speak for themselves so you know um again every creative finds a different path and and he's kind of become like the ear of the industry i guess yeah ken for you would the goal be to sort of yeah would the goal be to move from sound engineering mixing and just to do as much producing as possible because producing is where you get royalties where you get credits why can't you just only do producing well who for and how often it's not what i want it's mm. what other people are willing to pay me and hire me to do. Mm. So you can say, you know, I'm, I want to be a producer. I'm going to solely focus all of my energy only on production. And then after a year of not making a fucking dime as a producer, you're going to have a lot of hard feelings about that year that you just spent mm. going like, fuck, was this worth it? Did I, what am I going to do now? I'm broke. I got no money. I don't, I don't have anything coming in. I got no residuals coming. Like it's not easy. There's no money in music unless you have a song that either syncs well or streams well. Mm. That's it. Especially for people on the come up. That's the two main things to tap into streaming and sync. And if you don't have a song that syncs well or streams well, you're not making any money. I mean, maybe you can, you know, produce beats for 50 bucks, you know, on beat stars or some shit that ain't a living. Um, but, you know, this is a business where every creative wants to do the exact same thing. So, mm -hmm. sure, I could dedicate my life to production. And you know what? If I hit a great vein of success, then I might be 10 million further in two years than I am now. But if I don't, then I might be selling my house and figuring out what the fuck I'm going to do next. And, you know, and that's me talking from like, if it went right now, like it ain't easy to survive in this business at all. 
And if you don't have, you know, if you have one hit, that's going to pay you for a little while. And then unless that hit is going to sink for a long time to come, you got to figure out where your next money is coming from because there's no regular paycheck. Nobody's trying to give you money for anything. You got to go make it. So, you know, it's really easy to think like, oh, I just dedicate myself solely to production. Sure, possible. A lot of people do that, but probably a hundred people try for every one that has any kind of meaningful success. Probably more like 200 or 500 to one, maybe a thousand. I don't know. Um, but I mean, here's some funny. So there's this app called muso.ai and they started tracking credits for creatives, which I thought was really cool. And so they just launched their own chart and they have mixed engineers and recording engineers, producers, songwriters, vocalists, all these different things that they track. So I'm like top 1% of mixed engineers, top 1% of engineers. I'm top 1% of producers. So as a mix engineer, I'm ranked 129 in the world, according to Muso, and I'm in the top 1%. As a producer, I am 1,425th in the world and in the 1%. So, and I don't make all, a ton of money. I make good money as a producer, but probably not enough to solely live on. And I'm in the 1%. So. That's crazy. Ken, yeah. out of all your Grammys, Golds, like all those big names of artists that you've worked with, how much percent of all that body of work is producing versus engineering? Oh, it goes in waves. Um, I've kind of shifted. I still produce a lot. I'd say half my time is production right now, um, which is more than I thought I would be spending on it. I actually was trying to back off of production a bit and refocus more on mixing again because I've really fallen in love with immersive mixing. And that has kind of made me refall in love with stereo mixing. And um, so uh, I've, I've personally have been more interested in pursuing that, but then artists keep reaching out and wanting me to do their products and they keep being interesting. So I'm like, all right, that, that sounds fun. Let's do it. So it's really hard. There's, it's tough to figure out what you should be doing, how much you should be charging, uh, what you should be anything. There's just no way to really gauge in the music business. It's just so hard and everybody's different with different styles of income and different types of income streams and sources that, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot of overlap. Ken, what is mixing? Why is mixing required? Why isn't it as simple as the artist sings a song, puts the beat underneath it and then done? The mixing process is the, the last thing basically. So the artist writes the song, gets together with the producer, or maybe the, they collaborate and they write together, whatever. And they create the song and then they record the drums. And then you have a kick drum track and a snare drum track and a hi-hat track and two cymbal tracks. And then you have a bass guitar track and you have a piano track and a guitar track and a, you know three different synthesizer tracks. And you have individual control over every single one of those different things that I just mentioned. And you can change how loud it gets, how bright it gets, how dark it is, how uh, ambient it is, or how close and dry it is. As a mixer, you can affect all of these things. So basically people hire me to take everything that they have done and make it the best sonic representation 
of their creation that I can possibly make it. And that best isn't sonically best. Best is feel best. What is the best feel? What's the best vibe for this song? How does this song translate best so that when the listener hears it, they're in it? And that's kind of the job of the mixer. So people tend to hire mixers due to, you know, their their taste, their past credits. You know, do they do you like what I mixed before? Then you're probably gonna like what I mix for you. And uh, and then you know you develop long term relationships with people that you mix for for you know years and decades. And, but yeah, the mixer is kind of like the final creative stop to lock in all of the sonics. Like the difference between an unmixed song and a mixed song is very often staggering. And we have the ability to kind of pull it all together into focus. We know, you know, where everything should be, how it should sound, and we can change all of those parameters. If a hundred mixers mix the same song, you're going to get a hundred different feeling mixes. And, you know, you just have to hope that your mix is the one that makes sense to the artist. And then you go back and forth with them after you've mixed and you revise until they have something that they can press play and they can be like, that's my fucking song right there. Yeah, that's the one. And, you know, and then you're done. Then it goes to mastering, then it's off to pressing and radio. So when an artist finishes a song that they're really happy with, they also have to take into account that it might change a lot during the mixing process and they're not happy, like, it's, they can't be happy yet because it's going to change. I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't say, my job is not to change everything that they did. My job is to make the best musical interpretation of what I'm hearing. And that usually means that I'm listening to their rough mixes a lot and I'm going, okay, what's their intention here? What's, what, what are they trying to cap? How are they trying to make me feel as a listener, as, as the end fan, how am I supposed to feel? And then I work to that. And I just, you know, you, you make your best guesses. The difference between a vocal being dry and right up in your face is an utterly different feeling than a vocal having a big reverb like you're in a hall. And the choices that you make as a mixer often are somewhat dictated by what the rough mix tells you or, or past work that they've done. If they've always got this certain type of a sound, then you know that you, you got to fit within certain parameters and put your own uh, style into it as well and hope for the best and revise from there. How do you go ahead, like, what type of revisions would artists be giving you? Would they be telling you, hey, like, this part's too soft. Hey, could you make it go up here? And are they giving you these vague directions and you have to somehow magically interpret that? It's, uh, everybody gives different revisions. Um, honestly, BTS is one of the best at giving revisions. They're, they're, the, the Koreans are just so concise with uh, their notes. They know what they want. They give you like, okay, from one minute and 10 to one minute and 31, turn up the lead vocal half a dB. And it's, you know, it's usually, and it, it, even then there's a lot of interpretation because they're telling you to turn up a vocal half a dB, which isn't much. But if I'm reading the notes and I get the sense that I can tell that they, they want more lead vocal, then I'm probably giving it back to them a dB up. A little bit louder because... It's not just a dummy thing like, oh, this, they want this. I'm, I'm, again, it's all creative interpretation of like, okay. Sometimes they give you really vague notes, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's harsh. Or it's, you know, it's muddy. Or it's, okay. You, 
I don't that that isn't like a turn up the bass or turn down the kick. That's okay. I've got to interpret what you're feeling about this, and then see how I can solve that. And uh, you know, you're you're working with creative, so usually it's just a nice creative process. And uh, revisions are usually really easy. And the more you do, the better and better the song keeps sounding. And you know, eventually the artist is like, "This is the one. Let's fucking go." Ken, why isn't the producer doing the mixing themselves as well? Because they built this beat completely from scratch. They're 90% there. They have the ability to increase the dB. They're there with the artist. Like, why aren't they doing the mixing and just finishing the product right then and there? You hit the nail on the head. They can get it to 90%. Do you think hit records are made at 90%? No. No. Um... One of my good mix engineer friends, I was talking to one day and he and I were sitting around and he says, you know, Ken, anybody can get it to 95, 96%. People like you and me, we're the only ones who can get it to 100. And not only is he right, but it's hard to even understand what that means if you're not us. Because I can hear something that the producer thinks sounds incredible and is finished. And I can even listen and go like, fuck, this sounds really good. Fuck. I don't know how I'm going to, I don't even know how I'm going to beat this. And then three, five, seven hours later, I'm listening to my final mix and I'm like, smashed it. Fucking no question. So, you know, and if I mix that song a different day, it would sound different. Nobody trying to make hits is trying to get to 90%. We're trying to get to 101 every time. So when Kanye sort of sends you a song, so he starts with his inner circle, he might have a mixer in his inner circle, they mix it, he's not happy with it, he then sends it to you, you mix the exact same song, and he's like, this is way better. But you guys are both mixing the exact same song. Yes. And in Kanye land, I I have mixed a bunch of things for Kanye, but Kanye is kind of famous for having like a bunch of people mix it and shoot out and and then whatever he likes best, he'll he'll pick. And (laughs) mixers, Sometimes you shoot out on spec and you don't get paid unless your mix gets chosen. And sometimes it, oh yeah, that happens with mixers too, all the time. Um, and sometimes if you're, if you're notable enough, then you get paid every time for your work. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, but I go in, I guarantee my clients will love my work. So I include an unlimited revisions until you fucking approve it as final. So I'm not trying to make what I love Of course I am, but I'm trying to make something that I know the artist is going to really connect with. And I feel like if the artist connects with it, then how could I not? Um, And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the process. Now, Ken, what was your experience working with BTS? Tell me that story. That sounds so cool. So BTS, they flew over to mix uh, their first album with me. Um, And uh, Hitman Bang and p dog and i can't remember the third guy's name offhand i'm so sorry um but the three of them flew over from korea uh to mix the first album with me and i think they probably hired me because of my previous work with um rain and ss501 and i've worked with a bunch of k-pop big big k-pop artists before bts so i don't know how they found me but they found me reached out flew over mixed the album and then i've worked with them on virtually every release since i think i've i have 
47 released BTS mixes. Um, I've done more, not every single one. Is, I think I've one or two hasn't made it, but 47 released BTS mixes. Uh, I keep cranking them more out. I think I've done three or four this year um, with the, you know, I got a two on RM. I got three on J-Hope. I got two on August D. And these people keep smashing records. August D uh, broke the record for, uh, was it a million copies sold on day one? So he pre-sold a mil over a million copies of his album, like physical copies, not streaming. Streaming, he killed it too. But uh, that was a, that was apparently a record. No other rapper had pre-sold a million copies of their record on day one in history. So I've been catching some some great ones with BTS. Thank you very much. I love those guys. Um, but you know, it, it's also incredible to see like how much uh, one person can change the history of music and when i think about that i think of like hitman bang and p-dog uh initially because hitman had the vision um 100 had the vision for where he was going to take them and how big he was going to make them he saw it before the first album I, and he told me and then it happened and i was just like okay the only other people i can really think of who said incredibly crazy shit and then backed it the fuck up was like kanye and bts so you know who knows but usually i mix for the rappers uh rm sugar uh augusty and j-hope and then i'll usually mix so i'll mix for their individual projects and i'll mix their uh the songs that they're the main features on on the bts albums i i often get calls for as well so yeah i've been listening to a lot of um i've been replaying that j-hope and j cole song mm. Yeah, man, I wish they had called me for that. Um, they did actually. I mixed on the uh, proof anthology. I mixed Born Sinner, um, and that not Born Sinner. I mixed Born Singer. Born Singer on the BTS proof album is a cover of sorts of the J Cole song Born Sinner, which I am a co-producer on. So. That was like life imitating art. You know, they call me up and they they said, we have a really special song and we want you to mix for us. And, and uh, they sent it to me. I was like, did you guys know that I produced on this originally? And they're like, yes, that's why we called you on this. I was like, <laughs> so yeah, Born Center, uh, just the Yeezus and Born Center albums just had their 10 year anniversary. They came out same week in 2013. Uh Yeezus was number one for two weeks, and then the third week, Born Center took over the number one spot, and then uh, has done incredible. I think I wouldn't be surprised if Born Center has out outstreamed or outsold Yeezus. I'd be interested to to see that. But yeah, I love that album. J Cole's brilliant. Ken, when you're working closely with someone like BTS and you've worked on a bunch of different tracks, like could you maybe you're already there, but is it possible when you have that relationship to get to a point when you get like a small royalty and, and not get an upfront payment? Or is it just a one-time payment each time and in 20 years time, those songs might still be playing and all you get is the credit? It depends. It depends what you negotiate. It depends what they want you to do. It depends what your rights are in the moment. If you wrote something, then you're a writer and they got to work out a percentage with you. Or, you know, there's often like pretty standard percentages that people 
claim. What if just mixing? Just for mixing. No. You get an upfront, unless you get points on the record for mixing, which most people don't, you get an upfront paycheck. When that money is spent, all you have is the credit left. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's still a good credit. That credit will make me more money because, you know, people will hire me because I worked on that album. So. Are there big name mixers, people who are just solely mixers and they have that much power where they can? get royalties oh, yeah. just on all their mixes oh yeah 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 i'm i'm 129 on that list the top five or 10 or 15 absolutely command big paychecks and big points 100 certain um not big they probably get a point or maybe two points if they're lucky um and they probably get i'd say top five or probably getting three to eight thousand a mix um plus points can someone like kanye have an idea for a beat and he's and he just sets it to a hundred b-list producers picks the best one he likes well he wouldn't it's... because you're really tight with uh you know you might get beats in from 100 b-list producers but you're not going to send anything out to 100 b-list producers as a star you don't send shit out because you don't want people leaking your stuff and you don't want you know you don't want it like access gets restricted the bigger that you get like even you know over the year like half the time i couldn't call these people that i work with all the time uh you know i'm not trying to be friends with them i'm trying to just be you know there for them when they need my creative services but but yeah ex exclusivity as you get bigger is definitely a thing for for multiple reasons not just because you can be more exclusive but Ken, what's happening when Taylor Swift is creating all these Taylor versions of her songs? Like, what is the masters and the fact that she doesn't have the masters for all these other songs? What does that lose her out on? Well, she still makes money on those songs on the master portion in the form of artist royalties, which are points against the master. So she doesn't own those masters, but she still profits from those masters. Not nearly as much as if she actually owned the whole master. She only gets a piece of it. The new ones that she's re-recorded, she's basically said that, you know, she tried to buy her masters back. That was unsuccessful. So she said, fuck it. I'm just going to re-record my albums. I'm going to re-record them. I'm going to own them. And I think what the other thing that she did was she said, whenever I have a new album version of an older album, I will no longer approve syncs on those old versions that's the key that's the main reason that i think this whole thing happens is because any of this and she does great in sync she makes millions a year in sync i'm sure every time they sync a taylor song now it's got to be off taylor's version taylor owns the master taylor wrote it I don't know, or co-owns and co-wrote it and blah, blah. but still she's got now the lion's share of uh, ownership and representation in it so i think it's something that almost no other artist could do because it's an incredibly time consuming and difficult and probably fairly wildly expensive uh to do this stuff but with the kind of the business model that i that i perceive her going after is to basically say that okay all of these songs are great songs they're gonna sink forever 
my grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren are going to hear my songs in TV shows and films. So I want to make sure that anytime those songs get played and used, that I am the main beneficiary, not that label or that person or that company or that whatever. I think that was her, uh, her main push behind that. And, you know, if she's got the power to do it, good on her. What stops the label from syncing the label-owned version of the same song? They need the artist's approval. They need the creative's approval. Mm. If I have a, a, like a, say I have a 25% of a big hit and it gets a sync and I don't want that sync to happen, I can just say no. And nobody else gets that sync either. So all of the other creatives who worked with me on that record lose because I'm going to be the fucking asshole in the room, but um, they can't go around you. So that's the one good thing about, you know, uh, being a writer is you do, unless you've given up that control to others and you certainly can easily do that. But, um, but if you retain control of your writing, then anytime you sync something, they have to get your approval and say yes. Does that mean if there's like a producer from like an old Kanye track that no longer likes Kanye, that producer, if he has the rights, can say no to all sync licenses and cut out? It can happen, I think. Um, I think most labels have probably worked some sort of language into their contracts that if they're giving you XYZ for ABC that they can do anything they want with it mm. and you can't stop. Um, that's not, that's not all people. Some people have a lot of power to do whatever they want, but most people also like to make money. So if there's money on the table, let it roll. Mm. Um, but if, but if you're in a position where you can create, uh, an uh, virtually infinite amount of future wealth for yourself by re-recording your albums, and you know they're going to sink forever. I mean, it's just, it's so rare. I don't know almost any other artist that it would really make a lot of sense to do that. There might be some, but I would say not albums, but singles. You know, if you had a huge hit single and you only had this much of it, but you should have this much of it, and you could hire this producer to redo it and make it sound just like the fucking original from scratch, and pay them X amount of money and X amount of rights to do that, then, you know, as long as what you put out still inspires people, that's the key. It ain't easy to just re-inspire people on the same song. You always risk the, why the fuck did you do that? Huh? But, you know, Taylor is a one of one. What she can do, nobody else can do. In many, 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 many facets of the music industry, what she can do, nobody else can do. Why is it expensive? to redo a song copy a song like what's... how are you going to recreate that magic mm. that's the that's the x factor when you're creating so often in the studio or during the creative process during the writing process any mixing process things happen happy accidents you try things you get inspired by something and in the moment you just capture that moment for whatever it is 
and just go ahead and try to recapture it again. Wow. That's, you know, it's going back to a hit is so, so difficult to get. And one of the worst ways to try and get a hit is to try and write a hit. It's just, that's not the formula for hit, right? <laughs> there is no formula for hit writing. Um, the formula for hit writing is get in the room with hit writers and learn what they do and, and do good work. But, um, you know, and I, I'm sure there's, I haven't listened to a lot of the Taylor version stuff. I don't have a lot of time to listen to music for enjoyment, unfortunately, but, but, you know, I, I know I have Taylor fan friends who are like, ah, you know, I love this one, but this one just wasn't really the, and this one was great. And that one was the, and you're like, okay, they'll forgive her because she's Taylor. And, you know, it's just a new version. And especially on the back of now eras, the tour, my God, fucking what an amazing tour. Just incredible. Um, we saw it in Cincinnati and we were just blown away. Um, but uh, I've never seen anybody connect with fans the way she does. Nobody. And I don't think that we will ever see another artist with a tour as big as this in our lifetimes. I would be shocked. And I don't know what artist currently in the mix right now could rise to this level. And I don't know, there's not a vehicle that exists anymore to get new artists up to this level. It's just, it, there's, you know, people curate their lives now. You know, you choose when you want, what entertainment, what it is, when you can pause it, you choose what you eat, when you eat, where you order it from, where you buy it from. Everything is a la carte in your life. So that gives the labels less ability to homogenize the music environment. If Taylor Swift came out today, and how long has her career been? Maybe 20 years so far? If she came out today and had the exact same run for the next 20 years, she'd be... I, I think she'd be a successful artist. She wouldn't have the Eras tour. She wouldn't have anything close to that. There's, I think it's been capped. I think we've seen the last of the mega artists. And, uh, you know, which is it's good in some ways because it, it allows, you know, it spreads out the playing field and lets a lot more people uh, have smaller shots, which I don't mind at all. Makes a lot of sense. Ken, what do you think like made K-pop so big? K-pop is like, like it's a global phenomenon. Like what, where did they innovate? Are they just harder working, more unique beats? Like did they take inspiration from American pop and innovate it in some way? And what was that innovation? If, if you want my honest opinion, and I'm not a K-pop expert. I know about the K-pop artists that I work with. Like, I'm not super into the culture. I just don't have time, you know. But if I had to guess, uh, BTS is BTS because of Hitman and P-Dog. I mean, the, the don't get me wrong. The guys are fucking great. You don't get to that level without being brilliant as an artist. The, those guys are tremendous artists. But it was Hitman's vision and P-Dog's execution of that vision that I believe created the opportunity for K-pop to expand worldwide. 
I mean, take out BTS. Do you think K-pop is even a thing in, in America? Maybe, maybe, but not like it is now, not like a BTS level. But when I tell you Hitman called that shit before the first album, he said, we're going to be the biggest artist in the world. I'm <laughs> like, all right. And I never discount when people at that level say shit like that to me because Kanye West was that guy. So, you know, I'm like, now I'm just sitting back on, okay, I'm going to watch what you do. And then he fucking did it. And that's like, there's another story. Um, it's a guy named Steve Greenberg. And uh, he was a top exec at a bunch of different labels, Atlantic and London. And I can't remember. And he had this group signed to him at Atlantic called the Baja Men. And they were not really successful. They were, they were okay. Nobody really knew them. And, but he had the song, Who Let the Dogs Out. He had a vision for it. And he took the Baja Men. He added three front men to the group. He switched labels, I think twice on him. I can't remember. Until he found the label that was like, oh, we see the vision of this. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we see this. And he just knew. And if you take Steve Greenberg out of that equation, nobody ever heard Who Let the Dogs Out. One of the most massive hits in history, gone. And he had that vision for years and years, left companies to pursue that vision, formed companies to pursue that vision all over one song with one fucking group and smashed it. But the flip side of that is how often people take those same level of shots and they don't go. That's a one in a million shot. That's just exceptional vision that you just see certain creatives just they just know when you have something and you know you have something and you're like i'm not letting this shit go we gotta find out i don't care what it takes i gotta find out and you find out and you either make your mark or you you know dust yourself off and you try again and that's the music piss ken who is hitman and p-dog are they like the manager? Are they like a Simon Cowell? Hitman is the owner of the company. Well, he was. Now it's Heeb or Hybe or I don't know how you pronounce that. But when it was Big Hit Entertainment, Hitman is Big Hit. That's mm -hmm. him. So and P Dog is the uh, still the main producer uh, for the Big Hit camp. So he's not the only producer by a country mile, but he was you know the one of the founding creative visions of the record and has been a seminal you know creative guide and producer for for them throughout their entire careers you know again these you just see this enormous amount of influence in music and if you took six people off the playing board 10 years ago we would have a completely different music industry right now now does artists in america like kanye taylor swift drake do they have a hitman or are they hitman and the artists combined everybody's different everybody's different like i think you know you look at i don't really know what rick rubin did for and with adele but mm. you know i think rick rubin and adele are like mm. two peas whereas kanye was gonna be he was gonna fucking make it happen for himself one way or the other or the 10 other 
like that dude is just driven as fuck and just had so much talent to back it up is ridiculous um and you know drake had his core team of still does boy wonder and noah shabib 40 and uh um i'm sure there's other guys that are like seminal to that camp um i think drake is kind of more camp and i don't know i haven't created kanye in forever so i don't really know about that because hitman is 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 he just a businessman that put together this music company and brought together a bunch of singers put together groups or well i i think he had success in k-pop before they reached out to me i don't know what his prior success was but he seemed like he knew what the fuck he was doing um and and i know he had had some other things happen for him good in korea so he had a name and I don't know the, how the whole thing was assembled, but I assume that it, he basically assembled the group and held auditions and then put the whole camp together and then off to the races. That's so cool. Last question, Ken. What do you sort of see? You talked about sort of miles, you know, getting to the five mile, 10 mile, 20. What is your 50 mile? My 50 mile is to continue what I'm doing at the level I'm doing it or higher for as long as I possibly can and hopefully work a little less hard because I still mostly work seven days a week and uh and it's a lot but it's not easy staying in this uh level in the music business so you know every gig that you turn down somebody else gets and they're probably going to get the next one that came off the back of that gig and the next and the next and you didn't so you either decide to always do great work and show up and take your best swings every time and hope for the best and hope that that reflects good on your reputation and your, your work out in the world. And then you benefit from that by people hearing it and going, shit, he's really good. Okay. Let's, let's go. Let's make a record with him. And, but for me, I just want to keep enjoying creating with great creatives uh, and I'm not worried about more great things happening for me. You know, fuck. I, I, I never, my, my life goal at 18 years old was to someday work on one gold record. And I have now worked on 114 of them and I have a slew more coming. Like they drop them in waves. So BTS, I probably have 20 or 30 gold or platinum records. Let's just go gold. Cause I only count the gold. I probably have 20 or 30 gold records with BTS. They've only officially certified four of them. Oh. So there's going to come a day in a month or a year where the, the certification committee that drops all these is going to drop 50 songs that BTS put out and albums that are all certified on the same day. And they just wait so that they can get kind of like a big media impact from that. So whenever they do the big BTS drop, I'm going to have like 20 more fucking gold records in a day. Um, this shit is just going to keep coming. And as long as I continue with the attitude and the mindset that I have that do good business, do great work, try and, you know, I don't know. Those two things are really the, the, the hallmarks and do what makes me happy. You know, that's a luxury, honestly. Uh, it's not always the case, but almost any kind of music making makes me happy. I don't have to make a you know, a hit song or work with a big artist to feel fulfilled or, or 
enjoy my work. Uh, I enjoy working with unknown independent artists every bit as much as I do superstars. The only difference is if I didn't work with the superstars, the independents wouldn't hire me. So it's a constant balance between keeping your credits relevant and uh, doing things that you want to do and just enjoying what you're doing and surviving. Ken, do most mixers also have the ability to produce? Like if you were like a new up and coming, um, okay. No. Now, well, I wouldn't say that. I would say most mixers do not have the ability to produce at the level you need to be at to be a successful producer. Mm. Doesn't mean you don't have production skills. Doesn't mean you can't produce. Doesn't mean that every now and then you might not smash one. But it means nobody's really checking for you as a producer. Whereas, um, and that's not every mix engineer, like myself, Mike Dean, there's a whole bunch of mix engineers who have made the incredibly painful transition from only being looked at and considered a mix engineer to then being looked at and considered a producer. But usually, like the music industry loves to just pigeonhole people. And that's been something I've I probably subconsciously fought against most of my entire career is just, you know, I just want to do what I want. And I'm not a hip hop mixer. I'm not a rock producer. I'm not this. I'm not that. I am a producer. I produce music. And if that music happens to be hip hop and I can produce it, then I am. If it's pop or whatever it is, um, it's tough to make it in anywhere in the music industry unless you're fairly specialized because, you know, like uh, uh, back to my friend, Brian, nobody knows what 96 to hundred percent even sounds like. We're the only guys who can get it there sonically. So, you know. Do you think the best artists have a jack of all trades where they sort of are very involved in the producing process? Like does Taylor Swift, is she really like, involved in the producing and mixing process and she has knowledge in those things but still lets you guys i'm well i'm i haven't been in the room with taylor i'm i'm a hired gun for jack antonoff um but every artist is different some people like to be really involved some people are over the console turning knobs and moving faders themselves and you know letting the mixer do the majority of the work but touching shit when they want to or or need to and you know some people are just like look i wrote it we produced it, go mix it, you know, go like call me when you need me to come in and do vocals. I think, and again, every artist is different, but I would say, for instance, probably somebody like a Rihanna is not in the studio all the time. She's like, Oh, they, they found another song for me. Okay. Let's set up the session. It's going to, I'm going to fly in for this day. It's going to we're going to be in the studio this day. That's like one day in a month. Maybe, maybe she's in the studio a lot. I don't, I don't know. But then you have people like Kanye who coming up never left the studio. That was where he was all the time. And, you know, people find different ways to creativity. And, you know, some people crave the stage and hate the studio. Some people hate the stage and crave the studio. Some people are grinders. Some people are lazy fucks who happen to have an incredible pen. Everybody's different. And you can't be mad at the lazy fuck with the incredible pen because that pen is incredible and mine is not that good. So what can you do? I mean, if being lazy and writing incredible songs made them millions, amen. 
but uh you know then there's other songwriters who are doing two sessions a day morning and night and you know five days a week and and uh they'll show up and they'll write and they'll leave and then the producer will either finish the song or they won't and if you're a writer and you do enough sessions like that with enough top tier talent eventually you're probably going to start getting cuts Ken, what's the favorite artists that you've worked with and why? Uh, do you know who David Byrne is? Do you know who the talking heads are? Uh, have you ever heard the song Burning Down the House? Burning Down the House. Or he had, so the talking heads were like the seminal 1980s MTV band. Um, they had this song called same as it ever was, which was huge. And now David Byrne has like a Broadway show and he, he's been a legendary artist for years. The, the talking heads were huge. David Byrne was the, the head talking head. So I did a solo album with him, recorded and mixed it and played on it in uh, 1998 called look into the eyeball. Uh, I've worked with a lot of really fun, great, amazing artists, but David was the funnest three months of my life in the studio he just he rode his he lived in tribeca you know maybe two miles from the studio and he rode his bike to the studio every day his 10 speed and he'd take his 10 speed up and he'd put it next to the microwave and then we'd get to work and <laughs> and like day one he took my lunch order he took the whole band's lunch order on day one and then took mine and i was just like okay here's a star that i have been watching my entire fucking life and he just took my lunch order this is not gonna be a typical session i'm into it and it was fantastic. He was such a creative, down-to-earth person. And one of the most exceptional qualities I, I thought of David Byrne was one day he had to sing harmony uh, lines to his song. I can't remember what song it was. Uh, the producer was Mike Mangini. So me and Mike are in the control room by ourselves, and David's on the other side of the studio glass behind the mic. And David's starting to sing harmonies. And so I hit record, and David starts singing. And his harmony lines are so off that me and Mike have to hide under the console behind the speakers laughing our asses off because it just sounds like a cow farting on a fucking record. And we stop the tape and David bursts out into laughter. And he's like, oh, boy, that was awful. I'm, let, me, let me find that again. And he did it. And it was, you know, less bad by 20%. Again, less bad by 20%. Again, less bad by 20%. And by the seventh or eighth take, it was perfect. And you will very seldom ever see an artist allow themselves to sound horrendous in order to get to the place that they know that they want to and can go. Because he's not a harmony singer. He's a lead singer. But he needed harmonies, and he knows what those are. He's just not good at it. So he's like, okay, let me suck for five or six takes, and then I'll eventually lock in. And I, I have such tremendous admiration for that um, because I don't re ever remember an artist sounding that bad, laughing themselves off, and then repeat, repeat, repeat until it's perfect. It was just beautiful to see. Um, and that that was kind of a just a testament to how the whole – project was it was so much fun he's such a great guy that is so freaking cool last question what who's who's sort of in your radar in the current sort of music space i know when it comes to like hip-hop you know that the three sort of headed dragons is drake kendrick and, and cole who are sort of the up-and-coming people 
that you think you know you have a good feeling about and you can see longevity from i mean i don't know about rappers um artists in general i think the kid Leroy is great uh he's gonna be here for a long time um up and coming gracie abrams opened for taylor and was amazing I, they, she didn't act the show started early so they did a duet of a gracie abrams song in the middle of taylor's set she brought her out and it was brilliant um so i think gracie abrams has got a good run ahead of her um you know one of the one of the kind of sad things about being really busy and somewhat successful in the music biz is you don't have a lot of time to listen to music for enjoyment I, most of the time I'm listening to music, it is to sharpen my ears to what is happening currently right now. So I might listen to the, like the, you know, the new music Friday playlist on Spotify. I try and binge the top 20 or 30 on Spotify. Cause that, that pretty much tells you, okay, the top 10 slots here are what the labels think they can push. Maybe the top 20, but after that, it's everybody just trying to get their best song on the playlist but you the money is really going into that top tier shit so that kind of you know you'll often hear a song on new music friday and then a week later you'll hear it on the radio or you don't and that probably means it didn't do all that great on new music friday or wherever they're test marketing you know because they always test market singles and stuff they they don't record companies rarely put out anything without having a fairly good idea of what they think is going to happen I'm also a big fan of the Kid Leroy. What is it? Like, is he, does he just have a better ear? Is he a better singer? Like, does he have a big, yeah. I, I think he just caught a moment and then somebody recognized that. Some girl discovered, I can't remember what the story is, but I think he's got just a great voice and he's got a great delivery of his voice. Mm-hmm. And I think his lyrics are really captivating and you really feel him in his performance. Like, uh, I can't remember what the, his first really big hit was, but I mean, you could feel like he, you felt like he wrote that right after he went through it. And then he sang it right after he wrote it. And maybe it didn't go down like that, but as a listener, that's what I felt. I felt like, oh shit. Okay. This guy is just letting it all out there. And I think the listener innately you don't even know it, but as a listener, you want the fucking authenticity. You want the shit that's like, whoa, they are just doing them and whatever they're doing works a hundred percent for me. And if anybody else tried to do that, it wouldn't work at all. But when they do it, this shit is magic. And man, that's, that's hard to, to predict or find, or, you know, I'll tell you the the only advice for artists that I would give you is the only way that you are ever going to be that artist is if you forget what everybody is chatting in your ear about and you make what inspires you personally the very most. And then you just pray that it inspires everybody else the way it also inspires you. And if it doesn't keep trying because It ain't easy to inspire anybody about anything nowadays for any reason. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to care. So, you know, but if you get that one song, that's like the moment the kid Leroy did shit, but that his vocal delivery, again, a different person singing that song wouldn't have translated the, the passion in that, in that voice was what connects.
And that's the artist X factor that you know you just can't describe. That's beautiful. Ken, where can people find more about what you're working on and just get more of this, get more of you? Uh, well, youtube.com forward slash mixing night. So I do mixing night first Wednesday of every month, uh, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Um, it is a throwdown. Again, I describe it as like Howard Stern for studio folks. It's not a classroom at all. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, KenLewis.com is my main website. Everything kind of sources through KenLewis.com. Um, and I keep all my credits posted and my current news socials are at Ken Lewis producer on Instagram, uh, Facebook forward slash Ken Lewis. Um, I'm pretty easy to Google. So, you know, if you can't find me, you're not trying. Thank you so much, Ken, for your time today. I had so much fun. I love how real, raw and honest you are. I think this definitely gives a lot of inside things. I think a lot of people that, you know, I feel like this podcast will be evergreen and I feel like a lot of sort of people in the music space will get a lot of value from this just because you've been able to sort of really authentically just sort of give an inside look into your life. And, and I really appreciate the transparency. I learned so much. Um, you have like so much experience. I could feel it. And just after this, like, I found like a new love. Like I'm, I'm keen to just start listening to a bunch of songs after this call ends. And, and I've learned a lot about the space just from chatting with you today. So thank you. Well, Andy, thank you very much for the invite, man. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Ken. Guys, if you made it this far, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully you guys got some value from this episode. Please let me know your thoughts. Please hit up Ken. Please click on all the socials. We'll link everything in the description below. I'll see you guys next week with another episode. Peace. Awesome. Thank you, Andy. Bye-bye.